Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. This is Dick Drobnik, the director of USC's one-year mid-career international MBA program, and I'm interviewing Ambassador Robert Blake, uh, who recently retired after 31 years in the Foreign Service and most recently served as America's ambassador to Indonesia. Bob, welcome to the iBear podcast program. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. So let me ask a couple questions about Indonesia, since you have been there most recently, and then more broadly questions about U.S. public policy, U.S. international trade policy that we can anticipate. Uh, Sure. um, Tell me about the future of of Indonesian politics from from your perspective. As we know, there's a very important election for the governor of Jakarta coming up. Could you talk a little bit about that? With pleasure. The current governor, uh, Ahok, is running for election now to to succeed himself effectively. Um, And he's uh, run into a little bit of trouble because there's been a blasphemy case filed against him because of some ill-advised comments that he made rather lightly about the Koran, but were taken very literally and and used uh, to his disadvantage by his political opponents. Um, Most people say that, you know, about half the polls are really evenly divided. So we'll just have to see. But Anis uh, is also a very credible candidate, very good with people, much more careful about what he says publicly. And he's kind of positioning himself as the candidate of Islam. And well, you know, it's, I, hard, it's hard to ro- run against that. Yeah, and Anis is a very smart man, and yeah. he was the rector of the Islamic University. Exactly. And, uh, he was on a panel with me four or five years ago. And, very, and a very attractive and smart and nice, yeah. good guy. So, you know, it, 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 the truth is either one of them would be good. I think Ahok is actually a better administrator and has really proved that. Uh, so I think he would be a better governor. But, you know, Anis is a very capable guy, too. That Two from, years away. From your point of view, your perspective, does it make any difference to the business environment whether a Jokowi continues as, as president or whether uh, Prabowo would become uh, president? I think it probably would be better for, for Jokowi just because he has an established program already. Mm-hmm. He's uh, really committed to developing Indonesia's infrastructure, including particularly its energy infrastructure, which is a huge opportunity for American companies. And I think most importantly, um, uh, something that USC is very involved in, uh, he's much more committed to good governance. Uh, I think Prabowo is uh, more widely considered to be, to have various corrupt associates and would not be a strong voice for accountability and governance. So more, think, more old school. Exactly. And I, so I think that's really important for Indonesia going forward because Jokowi is one of the few national leaders who really is committed to integrity and is widely considered to be personally very honest. And so his leadership of the anti-corruption campaign is vital going forward if Indonesia is going to prosper, and that's going to be very important for American business as well. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about (laughs) Indonesian politics. Let's move it closer to home and and where you're currently living, uh, (laughs) Washington, D.C. And I'm not so interested in talking about domestic issues of Obamacare and, and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, we've been hearing lots of noises out of, out of the White House, or lots of sounds and, and uh, electronic uh, messages that uh, we have to be an America first uh, policy orientation. We have to do things bilaterally. 
and and we should sort of give up on on having multilateral activities because America always loses. We we get the raw end of the stick uh, on these things. How do you think trade policy might evolve? And what are your friends in Indonesia and let's say India thinking about what might be happening with U.S. trade policy and the possible impacts on them? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, just what are the countries in the region thinking? And then I'll get a little bit to what's happening in Washington. Countries like Indonesia, I think, made a pretty risky decision to associate themselves with uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. Indonesia is widely considered to have a relatively closed economy still. um, But they saw that as the ASEAN economic community came into effect in in early uh, 2016, that um, as they competed for big foreign investments with particularly Vietnam, but uh, to a certain extent all the other countries that were already in TPP, they were losing a lot of those competitions because companies were choosing to be in uh, and invest in countries that were already part of TPP. So they realized they had to be in the game, but they also realized that they had a lot of work to do to, to, to really uh, to get themselves there. So they were on a sort of longer-term plan and would be part of the second or even third generation to join TPP. From the American company perspective, I think it's very, very important because they had an incentive, therefore, to continue to open up their economy, continue to be very open to American investment. Uh, now that President Trump has disassociated himself from TPP, it's going to be much harder. And so the focus is now turned for, for both India and for uh, Indonesia to RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. and that's So the partnership that would be dominated by China. By China. Um, and, of course, that's a much less ambitious trade agreement, and, of course, the United States is not part of RCEP either. So uh, the, the plan going forward for President Trump and his team is to negotiate a series of bilateral free trade agreements, which they feel would be more advantageous to American workers. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but we'll have to see. Uh, the focus now is on developing a model free, to, free trade agreement that they will then use in these negotiations. But before they do that, they're going to have to sort out some of these big questions about domestic policy, particularly how uh, they're going to pay for the two big initiatives that the president has been talking about. First is the uh, $1 trillion infrastructure program in the United States, and the second is a a major tax reform effort that would include a corporate tax cut. And uh, one of the proposals for how they would pay for that is through what's called a border adjustment tax which would be effectively a a tax of, let's say, 20% on all imports. Um, And, of course, that's a major trade uh, decision as well as a a, a tax issue. And uh, And, and one that will not go unanswered by our trading partners. And everybody's, of course, going to reciprocate if that happens, and then you're going to have very quickly a race to the bottom. And it's for that reason that a lot of the people, even within the Trump administration, oppose that. So you have Gary Cohn, the head of the... Didn't, didn't we do that 80 years ago I know. with Smoot Hawley? Or? Exactly. <laughs> so Gary Cohn, the head of the National Economic Council, Steve Mnuchin, the, the Treasury Secretary, both oppose uh, BAT. But then the question is, what do, you, what, do you do? What, what do you do? And so then you've got to start talking about, for example, uh, getting rid of the, the mortgage interest tax deduction or getting rid of the deduction for state and local taxes both of which enjoy wide support in Congress and would be very difficult. Or you have to go with some sort of uh, deduction that's uh, some sort of tax plan that's going to dramatically increase the deficit, run the risk of raising interest rates, uh, 
raising our, which would in turn strengthen our, the dollar, which in turn would hurt our exports. So, you know, there are a lot of unpleasant choices that the team's going to have to make. And I think one of the things that President Trump and his team learned is that they're going to have to do a better job, first of all, of studying ahead of time what, what they need to do and being much better versed on the, the This details. healthcare stuff is complex. Yeah. <laughs> and they need to understand, they need to do a better job of reaching out to the Democrats, I think, in some of these things. Because I think, at least on the, on the infrastructure side, there, there's, there is support to, to move ahead on infrastructure. But again, how you pay for that is going to be a very, very challenging task. And that those, a lot of those decisions that I said will then affect these free trade agreements. If, if let's say we oppose a BAT on Japanese imports, of course, they're not going to want to negotiate a free trade agreement with us. They're going to be furious. So there's a, a lot of these interlinked issues that have to be sorted out sequentially. If, if they do the BAT, I can imagine that big countries are going to simply retaliate, yeah. uh, including Mexico, yeah. I think, will simply retaliate. But what, could a little country like Indonesia retaliate? Or could we put other pressure on them not to retaliate? Well, of course, we have a huge trade deficit with them, so you know, it's, they don't import as much from, from us as we like. So it doesn't, you know, not going to, but their exports would be very badly hurt. Now, of course, there are, there's already a lot of nationalism in these countries. And so if we do something like that, there, I think you, would, you, you could expect to see much greater problems experienced by our companies. And they would look for ways to punish our companies, which would be a very damaging thing for us at a time when I think over the last 10 years, we are widely considered to be the largest investor in Indonesia as well. Um, if you look at, if you include the investments that have come from American companies in Singapore, Singapore most of which are based in Singapore because it's just too complicated to do business yep. uh, in, in, in Indonesia. So they take advantage of tax and other incentives that are available in Singapore. Um, so, you know, so we, we st our, our companies based in Singapore and in Indonesia would stand to lose a great deal as a result of this. So, so I think they would, they would be the first to stand up against this. The other point I think that's worth mentioning, Dick, is that uh, most people don't realize, to take the, the Mexico example, if you look at the NAFTA trade, about 60% of what we import uh, under NAFTA are actually intermediate goods mm. that are then re-exported. So if you start to put tariffs on these on these products uh, that are coming in, you're going to affect our exports It'll as well. And the competitiveness of our exports. Competitive. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I think that very few, is, that really hasn't been talked about very much, but that's yet another unintended consequence that people don't haven't really focused well, do, on. Do you, do you think the business community is beginning to gather up steam to to educate uh, the Trade Council and other other people. Um, you know, I, I would think the AmCham's uh, yeah. in Singapore and Jakarta would be mobilizing to do three door knocks. I think they're yeah. Working. I think they're working through the Chamber of Commerce in Washington, but um, I think they're also just waiting to see what the plan is because there's so many different moving pieces and it's not entirely clear how the. Trump administration is going to proceed, but there's lots of conversations going on behind the scenes. And I think they're, again, they're lining up behind their various supporters within the administration. It's kind of giving them the arguments that they need. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about something you, you mentioned at your APBO lunch talk about public service. Talk a little bit about public service. Yeah. Well, first of all, as you know, Dick, I spent 31 years in the State Department. Um, frankly, when I joined, I didn't know if I was going to stay. But I found after three or four years that it was uh, among the most fun and the most rewarding things that I've ever done. And for, for several reasons. First of all, 
Um, every single day that you work in the State Department, you have the satisfaction of knowing you have been able to help someone some way. If you're an economic officer, you're helping American businesses to solve problems, or you're helping to open up opportunities for them. If you're a political officer, you're helping human rights victims in many countries, and your advocacy can actually save lives of people who might be getting tortured in prison. If you're a consular officer, you're helping people who are in trouble in some way, they lose their passports, or they get caught in a natural disaster, or any number of other things that happen to people overseas. You're the person who's issuing visas on the ground, for, which is the entry ticket to people in the United States. A hugely important thing, either an immigrant visa or a non-immigrant visa. So you had a combination of day-to-day problem solving, but also uh, longer-term strategic objectives that you had to think about and how are we gonna meet our objectives in whatever that particular area was. So the Foreign Service gave you a lot of leeway and a lot of, um, you know, uh, flexibility to figure out how to get whatever our objectives were done. And the other thing is just the opportunity to serve our country. And you know, I know that often sounds corny, but uh, when, you're, when you're going in and you're, you're talking about, let's say, a, somebody who's in, in jail and get, being tortured, it really matters that it's the American ambassador who's going in and, and making that request. People do care, they, they do pay attention. And I, I, so I, I think we're, we're all a little bit saddened to see that President Trump has come in with this America First policy, uh, which includes a, a retrenchment on, against globalization and against free trade towards more sort of bilateral free trade agreements, but also, uh, you know, frankly, a more xenophobic attitude towards foreigners, which is, is very, very damaging. But what I say to come back to your question is, uh, in, a way, in a way, public service has never been more important. And let's be honest, 95% of foreign policy doesn't change from administration to administration, despite all the rhetoric in our country. Let, let me close off this, this interview, Bob, with the, uh, a thing we touched on last night at dinner. And, sure. and it's this feeling in the world that xenophobia is rising in the United States and that America won't be a welcoming place for people to come. And uh, as an academic, I'm particularly concerned with student applications. And for our one-year mid-career MBA program, the average age is 35 and, and 11 years of experience, which means that the, the participants typically come with their wives and children, small children. In the last two months, we've had at least six people that we've admitted, highly qualified people, admitted for July the, the 40th class uh, in starting in July of uh, 2017, uh, turn us down. It's quite unusual. Um, none of them are from Muslim countries, by the way. So my point is that even though the immigration ban proposal was not about Japan or not about uh, uh, Brazil, it was about some change in America that's having an effect already. and and. The only way it would go away is if there's some change in the rhetoric, and I, I worry about that. Mm -hmm. And as you say, this is not simply a question of a few students. This is a business issue for many of, of our top universities. This is a top income, you know, a way of generating foreign exchange, a huge service export for the United States. In addition to the business issue, it's an intellectual issue. Right. We want our American students to be able to interact with mid-career Indonesian students and Japanese students Absolutely. to help prepare them for the world. Absolutely. 
And so I, I, I really encourage everybody to engage with the White House and to explain to them the, the importance of this and the importance of having people speak out quickly against these things. And I think, to be fair, you know, I think some in, in the Trump White House, Jared Kushner and Ivanka and others, do understand the importance of this. But the president himself has got to be out there much more publicly. So if he speaks out publicly, it'll not only reassure many of our prospective students, but it'll send a clear signal to those in America who might be contemplating future incidents. Well, I trust that you, Mr. Ambassador, will get that message to the White House. I will. I actually have. I've talked to a lot of my friends in the White House about this. And so I, it, it, it really is important. Bob, thank you so much for thank coming Thank you, Dick. In. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure. Business Class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite. <laughs>